Kia ora everyone and welcome to this New Zealand Festival talk. It's such a pleasure to be your MC and chair of this conversation today. Almost a year ago, our lives completely changed. Um, the events of March 15th in Christchurch really shocked everyone. Um, the world in itself was in a state of shock. How did this happen? How could this have happened in New Zealand? Um, and we were also picking up the pieces in terms of the Muslim community. Um, the truth of the reality is that there was a lot of things that had been occurring here in New Zealand that have led to events that took place. And now's the time on the eve of the one-year anniversary to talk about who we are as a nation. Um, a lot of conversations have taken place in Aotearoa and elsewhere around who we are as a society and what is the type of society that we want to be. I'm so pleased that we can have these four talented writers and poets and essays with us today. So I just want to introduce them um, each. Uh, so to my right, we've got Jack McDonald. Um, Jack is an activist and a writer. Um, he is also a political commentator and hails from Paikakiriki on the Kapi Coast, where he served as the chairperson of the community board. Um, he's also been associated with the Green Party as an advisor and senior office holder. Um, we also have Anihara Gilder. Anihara is also a, a, is also a writer, um, a poet and an essayist. Uh, she's currently at the Victoria University, uh, where she's doing her PhD. Kia ora. Kia ora. <laughs> We also have, joining us across the ditch, is Alison Whitaker. Um, Alison is a poet and an essayist. Alison, in 2017, was a Fulbright Scholar where she attended the Harvard Law School um, and was named the Dean Scholar in Race, Gender and Criminal Law. Uh, her debut poetry, Lemons and the Chicken Wire, was awarded the State Library of Queensland's Indigenous Writing Fellowship in 2015 and was published by Magabala Books in 2016. Kia ora and welcome. And finally, but not least, we have Nayadur Naidun. Um, Nayadur Naidun is from South Sudan, arrived in Australia as a refugee, um, and has since become a staunch advocate for African communities in Australia. Um, she is a commercial litigator by training, um, and a fierce community advocate, somebody who I've watched over the years um, and have really been inspired by. So kia ora and welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. But I want to start with you, Jack. When the events of March 15th had happened, what did you make out of, of this in terms of understanding who we are as a nation? I think it was encapsulated in the corridor um, from Jacinda uh, when she said, this isn't us. Um, and I think for a large section of New Zealand, that felt 100% accurate. Um, but for many of us, for indigenous peoples, and I think for peoples uh, of colour, that didn't really sit right. Um, because actually it is us, um, and it always has been us um, to some degree. Aotearoa is founded on white supremacy and racism. Uh, there's no two ways around that fact. You know, if we look at the foundation of many of our institutions, whether it's uh, the parliament, uh, whether it's uh, the courts and the justice system, whether it's the police, uh, they are in large part founded on white supremacy. The colonial forces that invaded Parihaka was not the British Army, it was the armed constabulary, the um, ancestors, if you like, of the police force. The, the leader of the armed constabulary who invaded Parihaka, John Bryce, 
uh, before Pariaka, he had been involved in an incident where he murdered young children in war. Um, after that, he went on to become the native minister, the government person in charge of indigenous peoples. Another example is at Rangiaufia in the Waikato War, the colonial forces uh, went round the uh, military of um, Waikato Tainui, as it was, and actually invaded the peaceful settlement of the women and children. It was on a Sunday, the Sabbath. Um, Māori, who had Christianised uh, in large part by this point, uh, were led to believe, and there was actually an agreement, that there wouldn't be any fighting on that day. Um, but the colonial forces used that as an opportunity to actually invade this peaceful agricultural settlement. Um, they burned houses to the ground uh, with people inside it, children inside it. Um, when people were trying to escape those whare, they were shot. Uh, and so, to me, there isn't any way around calling that um, a white supremacist-inspired act of uh, colonial violence. And so, it's hard to separate the actions of March 15th from uh, the history of Aotearoa. Uh, when you think of those examples, when you think of the fact that it is so ingrained in our, in our institutions, in our um, national um, consciousness, um, at least for those of us who have been on the receiving end of it. Um, and I think it's understandable and um, for, for, for many people in New Zealand who haven't been um, on the receiving end of that to not necessarily see that as part of New Zealand. Um, but that, of course, is uh, the way that colonialism works. It seeks to uh, invisibilise and hide those things. A book just came out recently about the segregation that existed in Pukakohe in Auckland, but actually that, there were many places where there were signs up, you know, no Māoris allowed uh, in, in movie theatres and bars and all sorts of places. We associate that with the United States of America, but actually it was also prevalent here in New Zealand for a time. A lot of us responded very emotionally to the Prime Minister saying, this isn't us, because actually, while we would all love that to be the case, um, it is us, and we have to grapple with that. Um, Alison, we talked about, Jack just talked about colonialism um, and that history, and, and I know that this is something that you've written about, looking at uh, comparisons of colonialism um, across the country. I was hoping that briefly we could hear a bit of that poem, um, but also just talk us through the poem in itself. Thank you. Comparative. Their fervours, dreams, giving you fevers. Their fevers, giving you fewer. Their fervours, learning, moving. Their dreams, giving us fevers. Their fevers, giving us fewer. Their fervours, learning. They dream, they learn, they... Comparative tries to capture a bit of what it feels like as an Indigenous person to be uh, a test ground for colonial strategy. Mm. Um, I have spent only a small amount of time with other First Peoples across the world. Racism is uh, something that adapts to its context uh, the disguising of uh, racist power in the colony through language, um, the shifting of the target of racism. Mm. It's alive and adapting in a way that Indigenous peoples, I think, without wanting to generalise, are really attentive to. Uh, and that's, in, in my view, um, where that really deliberate relationship has to come from. 
um, on, on the This Is Us thing. It's uh, mob in Australia, Indigenous peoples um, on the continent often talk about Aotearoa as kind of um, this uh, rest practice model and um, that is such a flat way to go about the relationship and I think in part is because of the, the PR fronting and the decoration um, that kind of takes place here. Um, people used to joke at the end of elections, oh, I'm going to go move to Aotearoa and um, those, those jokes don't happen anymore. Um. Anyhow, I'm interested in the work that you're doing at the moment with your PhD. I guess the question that I had for you is, what is the role of literature in helping us understand and navigate who we are as a nation? One of the narratives that I think we tell ourselves as a nation is that we are not racist, you know, that we, that we as a nation um, have great race relations, and it's part of that... Um, that romanticisation that you're talking about there that Australia has towards us. Mm. And, I mean, obviously that's a fallacy, and it's based on that notion that if we're racist, we're bad, mm. you know. But actually, our system is racist, and that goes down to literature as well. Mm. The systems of power that perceive what kind of literature they're reading, that decide which literatures get into the public sphere, mm. that decide which movies get made, that decides mm. where the funding goes, on and on and on. These are the power structures that are determined by the dominant perspective, which in the case of Aotearoa is a Pākehā perspective. This idea that we are so much better than Australia, we're <laughs> so much better than USA, um, we are not as racist as them. And it just makes me wonder why do we have to set the bar so low? Um, <laughs> to be honest, no, no, no offence to Australia, but, you know... No, that's fair. But, um, Nidal, um White supremacist extremists is obviously views that have, you know, festered in Australia, it's growing. Um, we've seen anti-blackness, um, racism over there increasing. Just month before the New Zealand massacres, there was a lot of conversation around what was being called the African gang epidemic. And what had occurred was that it was the Victorian election in Australia, and one of the political parties was running very hard on the law and order issue. And really, the way this was sold was to use African Australians as threats that we, they were highly criminal, highly violent, mm. and that one of the political parties was going to put a stop to it. So connecting it back to what happened here, the leader of one of the far-right groups decided to reclaim the beaches, and they were going to have a rally in one of the main beaches in Victoria. And a federal parliamentarian attended that rally um, and spoke at that rally. He was also the same person that said some very horrible things after the New Zealand massacres and where the famous story of Egg Boy emerged from. Because there was a young man, I think, who got so offended by what he did that he egged him. And you can see just how many layers of connection in the media, he was being interviewed by the media, the politicians that were there, and you begin to see how white supremacist views get a pass. Because there is no way that if this was the conduct of a brown Muslim boy, it would have never got to this point. Somebody would have picked up, somebody would have stopped them. Sometimes for the most mere minimum act. Some of the white supremacist activists know this. They know that they get a pass. They know that they get a bigger window 
to say some really horrible things and get away with it. They can say things like, let's go punch them, let's go beat them up, let's go call them, which was said in relation to African communities, and they wouldn't have someone knock at their door to pick them up, to take them for investigation. But, but if, a, say, a brown Muslim person said that on a public platform, they'll probably be picked up and be charged on some related terrorist incident. So they, I think they're beginning to see that connection, and they know that if they just use certain language, they would get away with a lot more. Now, I'm not saying that simply because people share the same language that they share the same intention to harm. What I do think that does, however, is that it lays the foundation for the extreme acts of violence to occur. What's really interesting is after March 15th, um, there's a lot of aroha, a lot of people wearing hijabs for a day, etc., all of that stuff. Um, and it was all nice. It was all really, really nice. But there was really some uncomfortable stuff that was really unfolding. Um, in the days afterwards, I talked about how we as a nation are still completely living in complete denial about the very form of racism that exists here. Um, and I know in vigils and, you know, events that had been held in the days and the week afterwards, and people obviously draw the linkage of the experience of, you know, um, what had happened then to what Māori have had to endure for many, many years. Um, mm. Jack, and, 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 and I want to come to you because I want to ask you what had happened was, I guess immediately there was incidences of people walking out because they found it to be too political. The issue was politicized when people draw linkages between what Māori had had to endure and the, ex what, the acts of white supremacists you know, towards Muslims and so forth. We haven't really changed much, have we? We're still living in that denial, aren't we, Jack? I think so. This was Muslim and indigenous peoples speaking the truth about their own experience in New Zealand, and then because it was deemed to be too political or too controversial, people actually just walked out and refused to listen to those truths. I'm friends with um, Goros Gutterman, the Green Party MP, um, who was very vocal during that time alongside people like yourself, Guled, and also our co-leader, Marama Davidson, and you know, you only had to go and look at their Twitter feeds or their Facebook um, comments at the time that they were saying this, and this was only you know, a few days after the massacre had taken place, and there were dozens of people just spouting the most awful abuse um, at them um, for speaking these truths. Uh, and so there's no way of denying that this is a part of who we are. It certainly isn't, doesn't define who we are completely, but if we don't acknowledge that there are sections of our community who think this way and still think this way, just recently um, it was reported in media that some of the white supremacist groups in Christchurch are now saying because of the increased um, police presence, um, which is good because the police are now starting to pay attention to them as a result of March 15th, um, they actually said, oh, now the, the, police are, the New Zealand's turning into a police state like Britain. Um, but the reason why they're saying that is because they had absolutely no scrutiny beforehand. Yeah. But, you know, you might remember in 2007, I think it was, activist homes, indigenous people's homes right around the country were raided in what mm. became known as the Tuhoi Raids mm. under terrorism laws. They were following legitimate political activists and not following the white supremacists who espoused hate on a daily basis. Uh, and so I think that just really goes to show what our society is actually like. And so I think we can't delude ourselves that 
racism and intolerance as an integral part of our institutions and the way that our society actually operates. Mm. Mm. And I think, just to jump in there, I think not only is it an integral part of our institutions, but actually it's cropping up constantly in literature. So one of um, a recent friend of ours who I asked if I could talk about this um, wrote a piece about Radio New Zealand Concert, um, her Mm. personal piece. I don't know if you all read that. but It was a really powerful piece and it was a personal um, description of her experiences of racism and the obstacles that were um, that were present for her to achieve her goals of being a classical musician. Mm. And uh, the response she got immediately, online, offline, she was told that she was half-cast and she didn't have a right to speak and her name wasn't even Māori. Yeah. You know, like, the, this is not... It's, you know, sometimes I think it's really easy to talk about the big, scary thing called white supremacy and not actually reflect on our own part in that, on, mm. on the ways in which we're encountering that and dealing with that in an everyday basis. Mm. And for me, that... D- that speaks directly to literature. It speaks to the literature we're reading. Mm-hmm. It speaks to what we are going out and buying. Sometimes, you know, we're, we're off to buy indigenous literature because mm. we think that's, gonna, that's going to educate us about this well, other, yeah. the other. Mm. But actually, we need to be looking at ourselves, mm. you know, and saying, what am I doing in my life? And how, what, how am I opening the doors for conversations? Mm. And how am I sharing power? It's, it's really interesting because when you talk about these uncomfortable conversations about race and who we are as a country, um, you know, for me and my particular personal example is that I've received far much more mm. online hate and abuse post-March 15th than yeah. I have any other period. And that's because there's mm. a period that I've been very vocal and out there fa- public facing. Um, and, it's, and it's crazy to think that. And, and, and Nairo, I know that, you know, as yeah. somebody who's spoken out about racism in Australia and particularly what's been happening to South Sudanese communities and Africans in Australia, that's, that's something that you've also experienced. Yeah. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, so the uh, online space is a very bad space if you're a woman <laughs> anyway. Uh, Amnesty International did research um, across a few countries and found that women online are targeted to such an extent that most of them don't want to participate on online activity and that, that a lot of it is sexist abuse. Um, and that particularly women, black women and women of colour tend to be uh, 80, 80, more than 80% more targeted than the equivalent white women online. But when you, if you're going to talk about race and racism, it automatically put people at a defense because people assume that what you're saying is that they are racist, mm. that their country is racist, that the country that they've been born into, you know, maybe their fathers have fought war for and died for is racist, and they don't like that. And so their response is to be defensive. But the, the truth is, you know... Um, we need to have hard conversations if we are going to grow as a country or as a people. Because the act of having conversation, the act of having hard conversation, to me, is an act of nation building. The act of living together is an act of negotiating power all the time. Mm. And there are going to be winners and losers. And so part, part of the reason why I joined the conversation about racism in Australia was just it was in your face. If you were a, um, a black person in Melbourne during the Victorian election... Mm. It was in your face. People were calling you names on the street. They were calling you dog. They were calling you black dog. They were calling you things that I can't say in this room. Online, it was the same. You know, I, I used to, every time I went and did a media interview or I wrote an article, I knew to set aside some time just to go on my social media and block and delete messages. Yeah, that... The amount of times people have called me ungrateful refugee, I swear to God, man. If mm. I had a dollar every time for it, I would have been a billionaire by now. So <laughs> I definitely hear you on that. Um, Alison, I'm interested in understanding 
the perspective of, you know, indigenous people in, in, in Australia um, and, and speaking about things about racism and discrimination. Mm. Um, how has that been like, you know, I, I, is, is you guys also called ungrateful? The or? state of um, anti-racist discourse in Australia is, um, I think, developing quite quickly. Mm. But um, it's really focused on the performance of mm. goodness mm. Um, as, a, as a shield to racism. Mm. Um, and if you can't make a, a kind of a campaign or an anti-racist gesture that appeals to that desire for white goodness, then the momentum simply isn't behind the movement. Mm. Um, and it's difficult um, sometimes to get people to see the connection between the, the founding of this nation state and how it's continued uh, to this day as a, a long colonial structure and also how that impacts other people. What is happening in Australia is that we're trying to have a conversation about reconciliation mm -hmm. and we also t t talk about multiculturalism mm -hmm. and I think there's a disconnect between the two mm -hmm. as if these are two very separate conversations whereas I think that if we don't completely address the issue of reconciliation then multiculturalism is just a function of furthering that process mm -hmm. of colonization mm -hmm. and if we're not careful particularly immigrant women like myself we are we can become excellent tools for the oppression of indigenous women mm -hmm. and one example is a lot of immigrants that comes to Australia because we don't have the historical injustices and the historical burden of carrying what happened to our ancestors, our, our process through the system is quite different. Mm. And when you succeed in that system, mm. then you, they say, well, you're just black like them. Why are they not succeeding? You know, and, and so you become this tool for bashing other people. The other way it occurs is that there is an assumption that simply because we share the same skin tone, we have the same problem. We, we don't. So when we, we are invited to speak about racism, and then a black woman like me is invited as a representative of indigenous people as well, it neglects to see the disconnect between our stories. And um, the obligation also passes back to us. So indigenous peoples uh, in the continent that's now referred to as Australia are uh, being used, again, as an aesthetic tool by the alt-right mm. to lay claim to an indigenous status as white people over this land. So mm -hmm. it's not uncommon to see um, people taking Aboriginal flags um, to alt-right protests mm -hmm. um, and it's beholden on us to reject um, people trying to stake that claim on us because it's ultimately about harming others mm. to whom we have um, allegiances and to whom we owe an obligation of mutual care as people on our country. Yeah, the old divide and conquer tactics, mm. it, it seems to be something that's definitely coming up in there. Anehara and Jack, would you say we also have, uh, I guess, a similar situation unfolding here? Yeah, no, I think so. And um, while I was talking about institutional racism, and I think it's really important um, to reassert that actually our institutions are a reflection of our people mm. and the people within those institutions. And we have all grown up, uh, at least for those of us who grew up in New Zealand, uh, in a system that um, denies its history, um, doesn't even teach its own history. Mm. Um, and so you know, how are we even expected to grapple with that history? We are products of our environment, and it doesn't take that long. Kids by the, by the age of five or six or seven are already spouting racist jokes or racist comments. And where are they getting that from? They're getting it from their society, whether it's from their parents or from the TV um, or from what they're reading. And so I think it's... 
we, we can't let, us, uh, let ourselves think that it is only um, our institutions, that it is actually uh, a fundamental part of, of how we of who we are as New Zealanders and how we interact with each other, mm. um, even if even when it isn't, um, you know, meant with maliciousness, it's just become so normalised. Mm. Mm. Um, this case of othering from each other and this case of of, of superiority. Um, th- th- there's no way of d- getting around the fact that um, if you're white uh, or white passing, like myself, I'm white passing. There's a lot that I can get get away with. There's a lot of advancement that I can make in Parkour mm. institutions that my cousins can't, mm. um, and so. Um, if you're in these sort of circumstances, like for, I, I see a lot of it because a lot of people who, who, might, not, who might not know I'm Indigenous, um, so I actually um, hear and see a lot of the racism that my cousins might not as well in a more explicit way. Mm. Mm. And I, I think that's... Uh, I also have those experiences because mm. I'm also white passing and even that term's really annoying, yeah. you know. <laughs> Colour is salient, you know. You can see that and what you can't see is whiteness often. This is something that I feel over and over again. And when we mm. talk about literature, because I'm going to keep bringing it back to literature. You know, people go out and go, oh, look, I read To Kill a Mockingbird, and now I've read this book, and I understand discrimination, and I feel really informed, and I'm <laughs> super woke now, or whatever your equivalents of that book are. But my question is, what books are you reading where you don't ask any questions, where you don't interrogate the text because you take for granted that this is the norm and this is right and everything else is other. There are books coming out now in New Zealand that are entirely written by non-Māori but about Māori content. How do we feel about that? What does that mean? You know, like we don't necessarily want to put people down for doing that work but actually there's a real difference between are you the individual writer racist and have you appropriated cultural knowledge and are you adding to a system that is racist? And are you adding to the power structures and propping them up that mean that it's completely okay for this books to exist? I guess so. I've seen, too many times people can have really positive intentions, right? Yeah. But then the implications of the actions can actually have really negative, unintended, maybe possibly unintended consequences. And I think that's something to really reflect on. Uh, but Naido, I want to talk about the impact of racism on mental health and well-being. Yeah. This is something mm-hmm. that yeah. you've written about. I think yeah. here in New Zealand we've seen that on the extreme end of things, uh, March 15th has taught us that racism kills. Yeah. Uh, we've been completely in denial yeah. about that, but clearly yeah. we've seen that with 51 lives lost. Yeah. But what we're not seeing is that actually it's making us sick every yeah. day, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. In democratic societies, we believe in the notion of free speech. Therefore, we might not like what the person says, but they should have a right to say it. But one thing I wanted to demonstrate, um, especially in Australia in terms of my writing, was the fact that to sell racist language and hate speech as merely something that hurt people's feelings Mm. is not accurate. So there are research establishing that racism affects people's mental health, that it actually, um, in your brain impact those areas as a physical assault, for example. Mm. There was a statement released by doctors in the United States in relation to children and about how racism has long-term impacts on children's health and well-being. Mm. And it begins with these ideas that minimize not only you as an individual, but your entire existence, your history, the people who look like you, and then suggest to you through you know, the media or all the politicians that you, you can never escape who you are. You know, you come from a people that are backward, uneducated, and it's likely that you're, you're going to end up in jail more than in, in other roles. So you cage people in, this, in these sort of stereotypes that diminish their humanity 
and their self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And so it's not shocking to me when I speak to young African Australians who feel as if they're worthless because that's the message that they get. Mm. Now, if you are a young person who is of darker skin color, or you can't just walk to on a street mm. and see a statue of a man who looks like you. Mm. You can't turn on the television and see politicians who look like you. You can't see, most of the time, the only people who look like you you see on televisions are entertainers. And so you do come to believe that people like you are successful, that they're not good enough, that there's something true about the bad messaging you're getting because it's reinforced by the general society through absence and mm -hmm. sometimes direct rebuke. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was trying to, 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 to bring out, the, the, the much more deeper insidious nature of racism as opposed to just it being contained in the free speech argument, which generally is where a lot of the time it stops. It says, well, it's just people being hard feelings, these snowflakes that you know, just need to toughen up a little bit. It was much worse in my generation. No, actually, the research is there. We know it does more than just hurt people's feelings. It damages people's lives. Mm -hmm. It destroys people. And at worst, it kills. Mm -hmm. And in, in Victoria, there was a young boy called Lib Goy who I play basketball with. He was absolutely talented. This kid could fly. And so there was beginning of the kind of media coverage of calling us gangs and criminals and all that was just emerging. And Lib, two, two, two white boys um, found Lib randomly, spotted Lib at night, and bashed him and left him to die on the, on the ground. Lib was taken to the hospital and his life support had to be taken off by his family. He, and he died. He was a 19-year-old boy. The boys that killed Lib had said things like, we were looking for a black man to kill. We want to take yeah. our country back. One of them had, in fact, read an article that his town was being turned into the Bronx and was complaining about it. And so as much as the media can step out and say, we are not responsible for these things, these are just extreme individuals. Mm. We cannot really tell what acts make somebody like that reach the point where they feel that they have to take their country back by bashing to death a random black child. Black people, immigrant people, know these stories. They know that what starts as an abuse of a black dog can escalate really quickly to you being in a position of harm. And this is the kind of seriousness you try to bring to the conversation about race and racism, mm. is that we are capable, sadly, majority of us are capable of some serious damage when we've been made to feel as if someone else is a threat. And can I just pick up on that um, quickly, just to say that um, in New Zealand, I think um, we have, our entire history, our media has been portraying um, Māori, Indigenous peoples and peoples of colour as less than human. And, and, that, and, and what Nayado, I think, was talking about in terms of how racism um, has so much effect on our mental well-being, it actually kills us, it's because it is a dehumanising, mm. um, mm. the intention of racism and white supremacy is to dehumanise um, other cultures and other peoples. And, you know, I was um, doing some research on the, um, one of the tūpuna who I'm named after, Tau Tōkai, and he was uh, imprisoned um, 10 years before the Pariaka prisons, who you might have heard of, were taken down to uh, Otago and imprisoned uh, in, in human conditions. 10 years before that, our Pakakoi tūpuna from Taranaki, the same thing happened to them. Um, in retaliation uh, to Titukawaru's war. Um, and why I raise that is because there were media articles uh, at the time that I've seen um, on papers past uh, talking about my ancestor in you know, terminology like he was a, 
an evil, swarthy-looking man and these mm. types of things because they had him on trial and they were mm. seeking to, uh, you know, imprison him and dehumanise him. Um, but that um, those media narratives about our people have continued from then until now. Mm. Uh, and, you know, while the March 15th attacks on our, our Muslim brothers and sisters have perhaps been the most stark and evil and uh, recent example mm. and manifestation of it, those acts occurred in the 1800s as well to our ancestors, but they've never actually stopped. Naitahu, um, the, the, the iwi that covers all of the South Island, they've had to suffer um, burning arson attacks on their marae and on their whare uh, for, you know, since the 1800s until now. Um, in my um, community in Kapiti, uh, we have a marae on our college, uh, Kapiti College, um, and that whare uh, nui was built by the community when I was a boy. Uh, when I was about three or four, it was burnt down by two... Um, local students, local white students. Um, and so that is an example of how um, the narratives, that, whether it comes from literature or from media, actually have a very real impact, as Nayadol was saying, on everyday actions mm. and everyday people, um, so much so that they think it's okay to go and burn down someone's mm. um, community. Um, mm. You know, it's the equivalent of burning down a church or, or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think it's very easy for us to uh, forget that actually yeah. this dehumanisation is a pernicious part of our everyday life. Mm. Recent conversations about climbing Uluru, mm. for example. Mm. We remember the reaction to you know, the cathedral burning in, in France. Mm. There was a huge outcry that this beautiful ancient building is burning. But one of the reasons why we value it is because we value the people who build it. Mm. You know, but if it was an indigenous structure, you know, so like Huluru that they, they have the same reverence for, oh, they're just being silly and mm. superstitial. Mm. You know, mm. so it, it's, it's this dehumanization de, de where there is a group of people whom we have afforded the, the assumption that what they bring and they produce and they write mm. is inherently valuable and other group of mm. people that have to prove their value. Now, just, just briefly, we have time to take a couple of questions. So, yes, I will go to my sister right here up at the front. I wrote down um, a bunch of words as you were talking about everything. Uh, allies, accomplices, quotas, diversity. For those who are in this room thinking, okay, but what do I do? What can people do, practically speaking? We tick the diversity box, you know, we've got all sorts of institutions where they're like, I need to brown up the environment, mm, I need to invite mm, a few, mm. few diverse people, safe brown if you're pale, please, you'd be really easy to ask and I don't think you'll say no to me. You know, all of this kind of <laughs> stuff. I think we need to really, those who are organisers, those who are in positions of power, need to interrogate that. Yeah. You know, if you are on a board or a council and there are, you've got, yeah, I've got my one Indigenous person, I've done really well. Yeah. You know, this is problematic. It's not at all representative yeah. of power sharing. And if you want to ring some people up and say, which we've experienced um, in the writing community, could you please come and um, participate in our festival? Could you please come and uh, give us your thinking around who might be good to invite to our festival? All of this kind of thing. Actually, the bigger question is, how do we decide? Yeah. How are we in the position of power where we decide who comes? Mm. Mm. Give us the power to make those decisions. Kia ora. Yeah. Um, mm. Did you want to add to that, Alison? Um, back home we have a campaign called Pay the Rent, which is really simple in its ask. Transfer of resources mm. and prioritising mm. Indigenous sovereignty. I would just... Uh, 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 not my position too, it's just okay. <laughs> what should be done. But I, I was going to suggest some, um, just some mental things I think that you could do. The first, of course, is to read and read broadly. Um, there's fantastic writers of colour and it's not a charitable reading just because you want to learn it's good literature. Mm. So you, you, you read widely. And the other thing is just 
I suppose develop the assumption that this is going to be hard mm. and get comfortable with discomfort. Mm. Mm. Conversations about race yeah. are hard. Mm. Yeah. They're not yeah. pretty, they're uncomfortable, and especially if you're going to have them with friends yeah. or people from mm. other backgrounds that you're so sensitive you don't want to yeah. hurt or offend. Yeah. I think it's just useful to accept that it's going to be hard and uncomfortable mm-hmm. and that we sometimes grow by being uncomfortable. Mm. I couldn't agree with that much more. And just before we take another question, one thing I do would like to add to this conversation is currently we want people to come to these countries and Im- integrate, right, as opposed to assimilation. But mm. quite often people conflate the two. Um, and when mm. they're talking about integration, they're actually talking about assimilation. We had a conversation about this earlier. So can I just remind everyone, integration is a two-way process <laughs> that involves both the whole society and resettled communities. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I'm sick and tired of cleaning white people's mess. I've been doing my bit as, you know, a resettled, you know, per- member of our communities. Um, and I'm doing my part. And it's up to the host resettled communities to pick up the slack as well. So that's one area which we can focus on. Can we take another question? Um, I'm reminded of those two Canadian white supremacists that were uh, denied a venue and mm. um, an event to speak about their discriminatory uh, thoughts and policies. What do you think about that specifically? Did that really um, help Oteroa or it embolden other supremacists saying, you know, we're being um, shouted down? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a one that comes up where they say, if you don't let them speak, they're going to go underground. They're just going to grow. Um, and that you need to bring them up to hair so that people can debate their, their, you know, these bad ideas. But the problem about bringing these people up for debate is that sometimes the media itself is not really set up, partly because of a lack of diversity to ask the right question, and in mm-hmm. fact, sometimes it just gives them a pass. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the biggest shows in Australia is Four Corners, and we had Steve Bannon brought in to, to have a conversation on ABC, Steve Bannon. And if you know Steve Bannon, Steve Bannon assisted uh, Donald Trump to be elected mm. and have instituted some very discriminatory policies, including the policies of child separations, in, in the United States that have yeah. seen some kids, you know, yeah. die in detention centers. Mm. But the, 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 the interviewer, and she's a very skilled interviewer, actually said in the interview, people have said you're racist, but there's nothing that shows that you are actually racist. And I remember thinking this cannot be true. Like the, Steve Bannon, I mean, if you're a person of color and you'd follow the story about Steve Bannon, he was mm. engaging with the alt-right, he was encouraging them, and he thought there were actually was a connection between him and the alt-right. I also don't think that we should be giving hate speech and violent incitement platforms. Mm. You know, if we are giving someone who is hateful and calling for people to be harmed a platform because they are powerful, Trump used that excellently. That's right. Mm. He knows that thing yep. about being in the media and being able to yep. say things and use it. What the far right groups are doing is that they've changed their language so that they know what message to dog whistle to, to recruit people. Mm -hmm. So if you're saying that giving them a platform is an ability to integrate them, no, sometimes an ability for them to dog whistle and Mm -hmm. recruit more. And if you're not going to look at the critical uh, balance between giving people platform and the danger of it, then I don't think you should be providing that platform to them in the first place, unless you really believe that you're capable of truly interrogating their message and exposing them. Otherwise, they're smart enough also to use you and get away with that message. Have any of you got any insights as to how people who are already in positions of power but have those good intentions can do the right thing? Um, thank you so much for that question. I have um, lots of views on that. Uh, as someone who, um, 
Um, <laughs> uh, as someone particularly who's worked at Parliament uh, and has worked in some of um, the places that power is exercised, uh, and I think um, most of our hist- New Zealand history and most of our Māori history that's written down in, in, in books is, has been written by um, Pākehā historians. And some of them, you know, f- most of them actually fantastic, um, you know, whether it's Michael King or James Bellich. Or, but I wanted to mention in particular Judith Binney, uh, mm-hmm. because Judith Binney is someone who actually completely immersed herself in uh, the Tuhoi people mm-hmm. uh, and in the Bay of Plenty among the indigenous communities of that place. And she basically wrote what they told her to write um, over the course of decades. Um, and she earned the trust and respect of those peoples and actually was just about elevating their voices, not actually interpreting their corridor into her own voice. Mm. I've had the privilege of working with people who are really true allies, and, and the difference is really uh, the ability to be uncomfortable, mm. the ability to be challenged. Mm. Um, some people who consider themselves allies and then you challenge them on something small and they completely freak out mm. um, and actually get really offended and hurt. That's not allyship. Um, allyship is actually giving your space or your platform to someone else. Mm. So I've often been a Māori advisor, um, the, the token Māori essentially, the token Indigenous person in Pākehā institutions. Um, and you know, they think they've ticked that box because they have you there, when actually every fight, every day you're having to fight and push things uphill mm. to even get your view heard as the mm. one non-Pākehā person in that room. So actually we have to think about how we transform, our co- constitutionally transform, mm. how we actually look at our institutions and say... You know, if it's Hayley Holt, actually, maybe Hayley Holt should have an Indigenous person presenting alongside her, not John Campbell. Um, perhaps, not, I should, I'm not, I've got nothing against John Campbell, he's amazing. That was just an example. But, you know, so actually, it's not um, about intentions, um, it's about actually the sharing and devolving um, of power. Mm. Mm, mm, yes, mm. and I, I 100% agree with everything that um, Jack has said there. I, I do believe, like, when we have... One of the um, great uh, honours I have is to work within a ropu of young, of other Māori writers. Um, and one of the things that we do is make a, a, um, a you know, bring each other along. Mm. So we try not to go alone. And if you are in a position of power, then I think that, you know, it's easy to ignore the fact that actually you're never alone. Like, you don't realise it, but all of the systems around you support you. Uh, when you invite a person to come and have a platform next to you, maybe invite two, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah. like this in a very real and practical way, you know, to literally share the space. And uh, remember, you know, it's about that self-interrogation for Pākehā. You, you are never alone. The whole system supports you. Like, you are never faced with the same level of potential discrimination that um, Indigenous peoples are. Kilda, um, unfortunately we don't have time to take any more questions from the floor, but I really am proud of, I guess, the fact that we as a country um, are now beginning to have conversations about racism and these sorts of things. Um, you know, I've always said the most challenging, hardest, difficult thing um, about racism in this country has always just been about talking about it, right? Sure. That's been the most difficult thing. And I'll be honest with you, it's still difficult to talk about it. I don't think we're still there yet. Um, sometimes really quite fast to move on from the conversation, but really we owe it to the victims of March 15th, the 51 lives that were lost there. Um, and if anything, we have to treat what happened on March 15th as a catalyst for change. And that brings us to, I guess, in closing, um, what we really wanted to do and to acknowledge victims and so forth um, is, is to read their names. Um, I think New Zealand was quite 
quick to move on um, and in, in remembering these individuals. Um, some of us probably don't even remember their names, so let's never forget their names. And in doing so, we will read out <coughs> 51 of those names. Atta Elayan. Ilik Abdul Hamid. Arab Ahmed. Tariq Omar. Muhammad Sahil Shahid. Sayyid Jahannad Ali. Harun Mahmud. Faraj Hassan. Mahbub Kokar. Muhammad Hasid Mud Tamizi. Ansi Alibaba. Orzea Kadia. Haji Daud Al Nabi. Ali Al Madani. Husna Ahmad. Naim Rashid. Tahya Naim. Ashmad Hamid. Kamel Dawish. Linda Armstrong. Mohammed Imran Khan. Mohammed Hussein. Shanaid Ismail. Abdul Fattah. Ashraf. Hussein. Ashraf Ali. Ashraf Ali Razat. Matullah Safi. Hussein Al Umari. Musa Vali Suleiman Patel. Ashraf Al Mazri. Hussein Mustafa. Munir Suleiman. Sishan Raza. Gulam Hussein. Karim Bibi. Abdul Qadir Elmi. Mohsin Al Harbi. Osama Adnan Youssef Abu Kwaik. Mujamal Hawk. Mohammed Omar Farouk. Mohammed Abdusi Samit. Musa Nur Awale. Ahmed Gamal Eldin Mohammed Abdel Ghani. Zakaria Buya. Khalid Mustafa. Hamza Mustafa. Sayyad Milne. Muad Ibrahim. Ramiz Vora. Arif Vora. And Zakaria Tuyan. Um, let's never forget their names. And I want to thank you all for coming today. I want to thank the organizers for putting this important corridor together. Um, and I want to encourage you all to continue to have these discussions. I think it's very clear from the conversations that we had that we still have a long way to go. And I want to thank each of our panelists, Alison, Nairol, Anihara, and Jack. It's been such a pleasure being in this panel discussion with you. Um, and just to close off, Jack will do a quick karakia for us. Kia ora. Tēnā nō tātou. Tēnei te mihi ki a koutou. Ko tāi mai nei, tēnei pō ki te whakarongo, ki te kōrero, ki te wānanga i ennei take waka hirahira, ennei take hōhunu, ennei take uaua o tātou. Nā kōrero ki te whakakahore i te kaikiritanga i wāinga i a tātou, kia anga whakamua Hei iwi o Aotearoa, hei iwi o te ao. Nō reira, he karakia tēnei, kia whakakapi i tō tātou hui. Unuhia, unuhia, unuhia i te urutapu nui a tāne, kia wātea, kia māma, te nākau, te tīnana, te wairua i te arataka tū. Koi arā i runga whakairea ke koe ki runga, kia wātea, kia wātea, aira, kua wātea, tihei, mauri ora. Kia ora. And that's all. Thank you, everyone.